90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Going a little cross-eyed this week, but that's okay. Oh, why are you going a little cross-eyed? <laughs> been spending a lot of time training on the uh, scanning electron microscope, and it is super fun. Um, we've had this SEM, as we call it, uh, for a year or so now, and they said, don't you want this training that you were supposed to have in the beginning? And we said, yeah, sure. <laughs> and it is the best thing we've ever done. Um, the tech is amazingly brilliant, and we've been looking at tin balls and dental amalgam all week. <laughs> <laughs> so are are tin balls and dental amalgam very interesting uh it, it is amalgam i just thought was like a word right for like an amalgamation or something but it actually means like a mercury mixture he had a lot of uh etymology lessons as well so it was really cool uh, oh mercury yeah mm -hmm. hmm okay yeah. I know. I, I haven't fact-checked or any of this, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, are you sure this isn't Cliff Clavin that's giving you these facts? <laughs> um, no, he didn't He didn't seem to be very Cliff Clavin-ish, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe him. I mean, he can drive an SEM down to look at or uh, micron-sized tin balls. It's pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. All right. And we'll, we'll put a link in the show notes for Cliff Clavin, for those of you not familiar. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. I guess we could have a few people too young for that. Um, what have you been up to? Well, I've been really busy playing with a bunch of hardware. In fact, it might be a rather noisy show because it has been pouring rain and thundering uh, right up until about now. But I have the optical rain gauge that we talked about a while back on the rain gauge show outside along with a tipping bucket and an actual graduated cylinder type rain gauge all logging things with a Raspberry Pi, trying to see how they compare. I hope you just push your nose, your glasses up on your nose, too. Oh, of course. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm super jealous about this, because obviously my rain gauge is sitting on my desk, unopened, but also it wouldn't matter, because we don't know what rain is here. <laughs> it's true. It's been a while. Yeah, yeah, it has. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Well, hopefully you don't get uh, taken out by any lightning or anything during the show, because... We're finally getting to an exciting listener-suggested uh, show. Right. So this suggestion comes in from listener Mike, and we've had it for a while, but we've both been traveling so much that we hadn't had a chance to really dig into it and do it justice until this week. Right. So Mike says that he is moving to an area that is smack dab in the middle of what's called the Driftless region in Wisconsin, and that there's a lot of, he said, kind of folk wisdom about this and the age of it, and wanted to know kind of what actually happened here and what the area he's going to be moving to represents geologically. And this was interesting to me because I had never even heard of this before. Had you? I hadn't, and the name didn't help any Driftless <laughs> nope. region until I started looking into it a little bit more and then it did but it also was kind of a you know head in hands terminology thing that we'll get to in a little bit yeah yeah there's a little bit of face palming going on um <laughs> but um that's okay and it's something that we both like to talk about a lot which is glaciers and sediment so mike really teed this one up for us i think oh absolutely and <laughs> glaciers have been a really popular topic on the show every time that we've 
talked about them. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you want to give us the, the intro to glaciations <laughs> in North America? Because as it turns out, this entire driftless area is related to glaciations. And before we get to even talk about what it is, we need to give you a little bit of background. Right, exactly. I felt since I had to do background research on what was going on, I figured that maybe not everyone has this information at their fingertips either. So we're going to start with talking about basically the, the Pleistocene epic. Um, and, you know, especially anyone that has kids or just likes these movies, Ice Age just came out with a new movie, so it's pretty popular right now. <laughs> but the, uh, the Pleistocene epic, geologically speaking, was about 2.6 million years ago to about 11,000 years ago. So we've got the Pleistocene and then the recent, or the Holocene. Um, and together, the Pleistocene and the Holocene make up the Quaternary. So we have to use those words because we talk a lot about the Quaternary when we're talking about this region. Um, and so for the right, past, so it's kind of a, a nested time scale thing. The right. Quaternary is the Pleistocene plus the Holocene. They're just smaller divisions of the time period we call the Quaternary. Right, right, exactly. And so the Pleistocene is important because that's when, you know, all the glaciations stopped. Um, but for the past 2.6 million years or so, we've been cycling between these glacial and interglacial periods. There's a lot of cycles within the cycles, which I thought was interesting. I learned a lot of words like pluvial, which I didn't <laughs> know. Maybe you know. Nutation. Yeah, some weird stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but all you need to know is that these glacials and interglacials have cycles within them, right? Climate gets cold for a lot of different reasons. Um, mostly that these glacials and interglacials are driven by orbital parameters and us processing about our axis. Right. So the Milankovitch cycle, <laughs> which is yeah. a really fun word. Uh, it really is. And actually, Milankovitch's story is really interesting. He was in a prison, and there's all kinds of really neat stuff if you get into the history of Milankovitch the man as well. Um, but these Milankovitch cycles, which we talk a lot about, are like 100,000 years, 80, 40, 20,000 year cycles. And they think this is really responsible for the glacial interglacial periods. There's right. A lot of so the. The axial precession of the Earth, so if you, you know, spin a top and you see it processing, the Earth's axial precession period is about 26,000 years, and then the eccentricity varies some, and the tilt is about a 41,000-year period. So you put all these together, and you get these multiples and beating effects that give you these 100,000-year glacial cycles. Right. And, I mean, there's a lot of climate variables that we're just going to skim over because we want to get to this driftless region eventually, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> so we're going to skim over that, but that's what you need to know. Um, and there's a lot of official names of these glaciations, and these stem from places in Europe, but we're going to go North American today, right? So we're going to talk about Wisconsin and that region, and so we're going to talk about these North American names for the glaciations. Right. It's like using inches. It's almost as painful to some people, and we're I, sorry. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, we like to mix stuff up around here, though. So <laughs> so what we want to go back and talk about, starting about 2.6 million years ago, are these four major North American ice sheets, okay? Um, and there's obviously all of the upper part of North America and Canada was covered in a continental uh, ice sheet, right? So out west, you have the Cordilleran. If you're talking about Canada, the Anushian, then the Laurentide Ice Sheet, and then, of course, Greenland. 
And what we're interested in is the Laurentide. That's the central and the eastern U.S. Right. And this was a pretty large ice sheet that pressed down on the continent quite a bit. In fact, we can still see its rebound in GPS data. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. So this, geologically speaking, as you should know if you listen to our show at all, you know, this is super young stuff, right? And this is something that I'm not familiar with. I look at, you know, billion-year-old stuff, so... Yeah, 11,000 years ago is yesterday in terms of isostatic rebound and everything else. (laughs) Oh, yeah, barely even yesterday. Um, So lots of retreating advances of these continental ice sheets, local climate, all this stuff. And each of these advances and retreats have their own names. Um, (laughs) We're sort of going to focus on the last glacial cycle, and that's the Wisconsin glaciation. Right. So like we said, this was 85 to 11,000 years ago. Uh, with the last maxima, you know, the, the peak of the ice sheet being in the 21 to 25,000 years ago time frame. Right. And so we're interested in that because that's the remnants of what we see today in terms of what we're going to call the geomorphology of the upper Midwest. Right. And so geomorphology is just a, a basically a surface expression, Right. Right, exactly. Um, So all the stuff that is around you, you look and you see a hill and you see a valley, and that's what you call the geomorphology of the region, okay? And a lot of geomorphology has to do with quaternary processes. So geologically speaking, really young stuff, right? Um, And since we're going to talk about the upper Midwest and its surrounding geomorphology. So we've got all these glaciers. They're waxing and waning essentially due to these climate variations and as we have talked about ad nauseum probably (laughs) um, (laughs) glaciers are massive agents of erosion right and with each advance they're basically scraping the landscape clean yes they are landscape bulldozers and they just level (laughs) everything right exactly um i think we all learn uh that the great lakes hopefully in middle school or high school, everyone learns this, you know, the Great Lakes were formed from glaciers, right? So there's still a lot, even though we're in an interglacial period right now, um, and we're warming up, there's still a lot of vestiges of the last ice age. You know, ice dams up low-lying areas during these glacial periods, and they create really massive lakes. You know, the Great Salt Lake is a remnant of a lake that took up, you know, amazing amounts of real estate out west, the Great Lakes are vestiges of much larger lakes as well. Yeah, absolutely. And we've talked a lot about glaciation before, so we'll link that show in if you want to hear some about some of the features uh, that these can produce other than just lakes. But for that, for now, we're going to kind of skim over that. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, so, you know, you got to remember this is continental glaciation, for those of you that remember that show or just know, versus alpine glaciations. Um So there's a little bit of difference in the stuff they leave behind, right? Um, And some of the things that we've left behind, which we've talked about in other shows, are things like drumlins, eskers, these kettle lakes, and it's kind of what I think of when I think of Minnesota. And all these are really common sites across the upper Midwest. Right. So the glaciers are either scooping land out or leaving behind deposits, which is actually going to be the crux of why this is called the Driftless Region. Right, right, exactly. Um, 
So we keep saying this thing called the driftless region, and both John and I had to look this up because if you listen to our other glacial um, episodes or any time we talk about it, we always talk about this thing called till. So what's till, John? So till is just the ground up bits of stuff beneath a glacier that it generally slides over. There are hard bedded glaciers, but you can think of till as kind of a chunky soil beneath the glacier. Uh, that is from it bulldozing the landscape. And apparently, till used to be called drift for some absolutely <laughs> unknown reason to us. Uh, it's kind of hard to get into, um, you know, historical geologist heads sometimes. Um, but yeah, you're right. And I found that drift sort of today, it's obviously not used, we use the word till, but drift today has sort of grown to encompass any glacial sediment at all and that includes like drop stones or big boulders stuff that we might not call till um is called drift but i will say like scientifically we don't really use this word anymore right and then from there you can by extension say that the driftless region was (laughs) creatively named for its lack of drift or lack of glacial till deposits and before the show we were batting around some other things that it could have been called that were Roughly as creative. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I believe I wanted to go with pointy, sharp and high and pointy. That was my idea. (laughs) Yes, and I was thinking to say the the rough region. (laughs) Um, So if that's not inspiring in you what this topography is, you definitely should go look at a uh, Google Earth image of the Driftless region. And I'm guessing you can just type that in and it shows you this. Um, So glaciers scrape stuff away. And where you don't have glaciers, what you're left with is the topography of the driftless region, which are really high hill, high hills, bluffs, big deep valleys. Um, the Mississippi River was actually cutting through this area um, during the last like 700,000 years. So this is what looks like and sets the driftless region apart from the rest of the upper Midwest. Right. And I will link in... Uh... I'll try to link in a place where you can go look at this on Google Earth and a topography photo as well. But if you look at the topography, it is shocking. It's relatively (laughs) smooth with just these little river cuts. And then there's this kind of blob triangle shaped piece of land in western Wisconsin that is really rough. I mean, it looks like the Ozarks or something. (laughs) The good old Ozarks. Um, We'll talk about why it's not like the Ozarks, though, but you're absolutely right. If you were just to compare those topographic features, I can absolutely see why you would say that. Um, And you can really see, and I guess I just haven't looked at it that much because it's not what I study, but man, those glaciers, those continental ice sheets really did scrape everything pretty flat. Yes, they did. (laughs) And I mean, if you look at the last several glacial advances, they follow a relatively similar pattern, and that turns out to be the key as to why this region was driftless and untouched. Uh, Right, exactly. Um, So we said it's in Wisconsin, and that was definitely the region that Mike was talking about because he's moving to that area, and most of it is in Wisconsin, but it's kind of at the confluence of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Michigan, and Iowa. Um, If you've ever been to Dubuque, Iowa, Dubuque, is in the far northeast corner and it's really famous for its bluffs and it's unbelievable it looks nothing like the rest of iowa it's definitely gorgeous but this area in these four states really encompasses about fifteen thousand square miles 
So that's a pretty good chunk of land. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. With most of it being in Wisconsin. Um, but I will say I did find some stuff in the scientific literature, not so much searching on the web, um, but going into the scientific literature. And I found that it's not entirely driftless. <laughs> Right. So you found an abstract, I think it was, that said mm-hmm. there is some pre-Illinoian till, so over 790,000 years old. But it's not from any of the more recent glaciations, but it probably was covered at some point. Right, exactly. So there's been a little bit of this till, but you know, there's these been these four previous glaciations, and the one that we think this driftless region, I say we as in the quaternary geologists that study it, you know, it might have been covered a little bit during that first big glaciation, but not since then. Um, we call this area, well, I saw in a couple places, it's been called the Paleozoic Plateau, which is another unfortunate misnomer. Yes, because <laughs> as it turns out, if you look at, and again, I'll link this in, there's a map of where these glaciations uh, advanced to. They actually followed paleo valleys and channels and, well, they kind of left this little island of untouched land. And, well, now it looks like a plateau, but it's not really. <laughs> right. right, exactly. So um, we'll get to, you know, that reason why it's not a plateau. But it's definitely not a plateau by definition. I'm not even going to use those words again for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, but if you see that, it's talking about this driftless area. Um, but it's called the Paleozoic Plateau because all the rocks of this age, the Paleozoic, uh, in the upper Midwest are covered in all this glacial till. And so you don't see them, but actually in this driftless region you do because you don't have a lot of, I'm going to call it till, not drift, <laughs> in that area. <laughs> uh, what you do see, though, is Lus. Right, and Lus is spelled L-O-E-S-S, if you're about to Google that. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, so it's it? basically during the glacial periods, you have these really dry times where there's a lot of dust blowing around and settling. Right. Um, so Lus is just that. It's big piles of dust. Um, and you can say that you get a lot of Lus deposition during dry, cold times, which might seem counterintuitive, right? Because you've got a lot of water locked up in these glaciers. But it actually causes a really sort of dry not a lot of precipitation and glacials as one of my favorite professors says you know they're dry and dusty periods right and there are modern examples of huge piles of lust around the world really oh yeah exactly and it's i mean especially in the upper midwest too um to go along in these sort of periglacial environments you get a lot of lust deposition uh eastern iowa there's thousands of feet of lust piled there also in china so that's not unusual you would expect that and so here you get some lus on top of these paleozoic um carbonates and sandstones here on the in the driftless region right exactly so what was always a mystery because it does look like you've already said john this sort of roughly circular region that was all encompassed by glaciation and glacial deposits on all sides so how did it escape it and it's what you've already alluded to, is that glaciers followed paleo valleys. Right. So they are in these channels that they've formed in before and keep reforming there. And so they pile up this drift around the area, but 
don't go into that. Right. And so we've linked in a couple of, um, that, that's kind of a hard concept or process maybe to grasp. And so we've linked in a couple of videos that show this really well. As we talked about, you know, these glaciers will surge forward and then retreat and they do this over and over again and they basically just entrench themselves in. Um, and now these paleo lows that left the driftless region, I also read some new stuff that, you know, the Great Lakes actually, how the orientation of the Great Lakes lowlands basically affected the way these lobes of ice flowed. And that's actually what kept the driftless region ice free. Right. And some of the topography exposed in the driftless region is actually really old and fascinating and completely covered everywhere else. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I know I've talked about the Wichita Mountains on this show before, and we always take our students there, and they never understand why it's so cool, um, because the Wichita Mountains are this ancient Paleozoic landscape. You know, they look today like they looked 300 million years ago and between now and 300 million years ago they got buried and then they got eroded out again but it's really neat to say that's the same exact view as if i were standing here in the permian um and you don't get to see that in many places and the driftless is kind of that sort of preserved ancient landscape because that's what the rest of the upper midwest would look like if these glacial times hadn't come in and these big ice sheets hadn't scraped everything clean. Right. And so you actually get to see part of the mountains that very few people have heard of called the Baraboo Range. All right. And I've never been here at all, so I can't I can't say anything about this. Um, but this was one of Mike's specific questions was, did the Baraboo Range actually keep, you know, the continental ice sheet from coming into the area now called the Driftless? And the Baraboo Range, um, it's an ancient mountain range. It's all Precambrian quartzites and stuff and it was probably you know formed in the pre-cambrian early cambrian so you know 500 million years ago at least and this actually forms the eastern boundary of the driftless region um ports portions of the baraboo range though were glaciated right but it's still possible i mean we do know that topography significantly can control uh, where glaciers go so it's possible that it did have something to do with trying to steer the ice Right, exactly. But I mean, you know, the Baraboo Range is only on a small sort of eastern part of it. Um, and it definitely wasn't a contributing factor, you know, for all of the driftless region. But just like right. you said, John, you know, this paleotopography really has a lot of interaction with the processes that are going on. So I mean, the paleo valleys are the main controlling factor. And it's just, <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, inverse mountains. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is that is exactly what they are. <laughs> um so this region was never scraped clean. That's the that's what the driftless region is. It's really cool to think about. For me, the coolest part is to think about that's what all the upper Midwest would look like. You know, my husband's from Iowa. It's really sort of flat and boring there. <laughs> like it'd be awesome if all of it looked like Dubuque. Uh yes, and I would <laughs> love to put a time lapse camera in this area and just have a time lapse of the last oh, oh I don't yeah. know, you know few hundred thousand years yes exactly just to watch all these valleys get filled up with drift i guess <laughs> we it, have it, to say it would be really really cool yeah um so i'm really glad that mike suggested this even though you know it took us a while to get to it but it was really interesting to learn about that area because we hadn't 
neither one of us have really experienced it besides I've been to some of the areas, but I didn't know anything about it. But also that begs the question, is there anywhere else like it? I, I don't know. Is there? <laughs> so when I first started reading about this and I saw Paleozoic Plateau, I immediately thought of the Colorado Plateau because, you know, this is this large uplifted region. It hasn't been affected by the same processes as outside of it. It's got some right. really impressive, you know, valleys and cutting down from streams and stuff. Um, but it's nothing like that, right? Because we said the Driftless region isn't actually a plateau. Right. It just <laughs> yeah. didn't get bulldozed. Right, exactly. So it's not an actual paleo high, anything like this. And I read in a couple places, and I will say they were touristy websites that said the Driftless region is unique in the world. Right. And there is a lot of tourism here when you Google the Driftless oh, region. Oh, yes. Um, yep. The, the Wisconsin Dells is a place that I visited. And uh, there's a lot of water parks there, which are obviously recent in age. <laughs> <laughs> um that's that's about the topography that i remember paying attention to <laughs> right um so as far as we know there isn't any small pockets like this that have escaped continental glaciation um it'd be interesting if we ever find any and i think that more geologists probably need to understand this region so they know what they're looking at especially if they're working anywhere that's been glaciated yeah and I, I hope that Mike sends us some pictures to share. Yes. Once yes. he gets here, so we can actually see this topography other than a few of the pictures we saw online. Uh, right, exactly. Um, <laughs> I did read a funny, <laughs> a funny little blurb about it when somebody said that they had grown up in the middle of the Driftless region and never understood why people always said the Upper Midwest was really flat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty good. Hopefully they listen and now they know why. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. So, Mike, I hope we did justice and answered some questions about the drift list for you. And I know we've had some suggestions for other regions to look at. If you're curious about your region and it has some interesting geology, drop us a line. Yes, absolutely. Um, my region is definitely something I've been exploring, and it has a lot to do with the, uh, the fun paper this week. Yeah, so the fun paper is really more of a, a fun article. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I have true. to ask, do, do you have the bear bells ready? Man, I don't. I just, I still, I've been in the SEM room. I haven't even been to my office yet. Oh, boy. Okay, well, we're going to edit some in this week. Yeah, I'm going to get killed. i got to bring it back. <laughs> uh, so this article is the psychology of Pokemon Go. What's fueling the obsession? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what's fueling my obsession is that I still haven't caught a Pikachu yet. That's, that's what's killing me. <laughs> Isn't that the main character? I know nothing about this. Oh, don't act like you don't. <laughs> I have not downloaded the app, and I know nothing oh. about Pokemon. Um, so this is just a life science a sort of article written by a contributor that is, you know, into psychology. So... I just wanted to talk about it because it's really an awesome thing. This Pokemon Go is really great, I think. Um, because as if you've ever listened to the show, you know how much I champion the outdoors. And there have been so many people. So whether you have the app or not, you've even talked about it, John. There are lots of people outside doing this. Oh, I've seen an incredible number, especially where there are apparently a lot of them, like in public squares and on 
uh, yes. Penn State campus and that kind of thing. Oh, you just yes. see an incredible amount of people that look like they're taking pictures of the sidewalk. <laughs> That's exactly what's happening. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Pokemon came out when I was in high school. So it was a little, I was a little old for, like, say, the card game and everything like that. You know, but I knew what Pokemon was, right? And they say, actually, that's probably a big reason why um, the quick success of Pokemon Go is, you know, it just had its 20-year anniversary. And so Pokemon is hitting really hard. All the kids of the kids who used to play Pokemon. So obviously my seven-year-old lives, right. breathes, <laughs> dies Pokemon 24-7. <laughs> Right, and though this is having a lot of people with their faces in their phones, it's doing some good things, too. Like you said, it is getting people outside, and it is making people interact. Right, and so in this article, it talks about um, a lot of the success. The instant success is probably because Pokemon was so popular anyway, right? I mean, you've never played it, but you know what it is. Right. But now this game sort of mixes all the highlights of recent gaming plus actual actual people talking to people right (laughs) right (laughs) so you've got physical activity and then you've got this thing called augmented reality which is a lot different than virtual reality um and then plus the social interaction and they're saying that's just the recipe for the amazing amount of success that the game has had Well, and this wasn't in the article, but we had talked about it, that it seemed to be really good at helping kids learn like map reading and spatial awareness and spatial reasoning. Exactly. I think I made you listen to my 10-minute diatribe about that. (laughs) Um, Yes. Because, (laughs) (laughs) well, you know, I teach map reading, and I had a student say this year, I once looked at a paper map with my grandpa. Only time she'd ever looked at a paper map, right? And I understand Paper maps are going by the wayside. But that meant that no one could find themselves anywhere. And in this game, you know, it's sort of a Google-type map interface with your little avatar walking along. And, you know, they've got buildings and things on it. And so you have to be able to, if you want to find the next Pokestop, which is a place that you get items to, you know, trap your Pokemon in, you have to know which way to go. And even with my 7-year-old... You know, he can get the phone and he understands that, you know, east is right and he's got to go right. And because there's a compass also on there. And so he can put all that together. And I think it's really going to help with this spatial reasoning. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm sure there are going to be studies done about this. So this has me really wanting to see. And this is something that I... (laughs) I would love to do if I had time, but when are we going to see augmented reality geology? When are we going to be able to point our phones at an outcropper at an area and literally turn back the time, like I was talking about wanting to do sitting on top Mm -hmm. of these hills in the Driftless, and through the technology of augmented reality, be able to see the geologic evolution of the landscape to its present state, or be able to separate, you know, sometimes you can see Milankovitch cycles in these layered deposits. When are we going to be able to do that as an augmented reality tool? It would be incredible for teaching. It would, and I wonder if anything like that has come out of some of these, you know, hackathon sort of things that a lot of, um, like the British Geological Survey 
is having. And then I notice every time I go to GSA and definitely AGU, there are so many more, you know, virtual posters and sort of, you know, interacting with Google Earth to measure fault planes and stuff like that. So I can imagine that this augmented reality is going to really enhance a lot of our teaching moving forward. This sounds like something to talk to all the folks in the Software Underground Slack room about. It sure does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm in SEM training, but I'm going to have my, my computer tomorrow with me just so I can see what you guys are going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, I thought it was interesting, too, this article, if you don't know a lot about it, it does a lot of differentiating between augmented reality versus virtual reality, because I think virtual reality is this something that everyone sort of knows about. But what's the difference between that and augmented reality? Well, so augmented reality, you're having, say, a camera that is showing you on your screen what it's seeing, so the real world. There are things that are not in the real world that are put on top of it. So it augments the real world instead of trying to immerse you in a virtual world, which the virtual reality headsets and all that, they're getting pretty good, but they're still doing a lot of work because, well, sometimes... If things aren't quite right, you end up vomiting all over. <laughs> yeah. I luckily have not experienced any VR to that extent, so that's great. Um, this is interesting, and I'll just throw this out here for people that read fiction. Not you, John, but other people. Um, <laughs> Ready Player One was a pretty famous book that was going around the nerd circles uh, by Ernest Klein, and it's all about this virtual reality that everybody lives in, essentially, because the real reality sucks so bad. Um so this augmented reality thing was kind of a kind of an interesting take because just like you said, you know, you're still interacting with the world around you. And that's sort of an important part, especially the psychological benefit of this Pokemon Go game. Yeah. And if you're interested in some of like the, the VR technology and how it works and how to how they're trying to make you not sick using it. There's a really good episode of the embedded.fm podcast where they talked about this. They talked about it to an engineer and the, uh, the hosts, Chris and Alicia White have a, a VR headset and said that uh, it was great <laughs> because the first thing they had to do was clear out all of the furniture in the room and make this big open space and then tether themselves to the computer. Uh -oh. uh, <laughs> Oh, that sounds super awesome. Um, Pokemon Go is not that hard to play. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I will say as just sort of a last sort of effect of this that they talk about this mood boosting effect of not only the physical activity because they don't let you just park anywhere and sit here and get these Pokemon. You know, you've got a your little Pokestops timeout. You have to move on to different ones and then come back and... Um, move around a lot but also I have talked to so many strangers not you know stranger danger but <laughs> like strangers in a good way and even if it's just a passing comment I feel like I've had more human interaction in the last like three weeks than I have in a long time yes and that that could be a benefit that's what I try to supplant with sack but <laughs> or, uh, slack Slack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not exactly the same thing. This is actually face to face. Um, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's cool because, you know, my kids out there playing and you know, this, I, we met the very first night we met like the 60 year old woman stopped and she said, you know, she leaned down and whispered to my son and told him where to find these, you know, Pokemon. And she had just gotten off the bus. She just did that then waved and was disappeared. And it's like, that's so cool. You know, that's not, 
an interaction we would have had. We probably just would have walked past that woman and not even thought anything, you know. And it's really neat, especially if you're playing with kids, to see all the college students will stop and try to give my son tips and they'll talk about Pokemon. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's just a really cool interaction to watch and also to be a part of. Yeah, so that is your fun paper article Friday <laughs> uh, for this week. And if, I don't know if you have any interesting, uh, they should put Pokestops in geological areas of interest. Uh, they do. I don't know if you follow, I follow all of the national parks basically on Twitter and they post all the time because they will have certain Pokemon that live in certain areas of national parks. So like you'll get water Pokemon near lakes and you'll get ground Pokemon out in meadows and the national parks are full of Pokemon that you can only get there. It's really cool. All right. Well, there you go. It's already done. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, if you have an idea of something that you'd like us to talk about, a region, or just tell us about your Pokemon Go experience in a national park, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you can get a hold of us. And don't forget that you can submit to the Listener Limerick Contest. Technically, yes. the deadline <laughs> will be the day that this show airs. We have several submissions, uh, some really good ones, I will say. Yes. But it's not too late because we're still working out the details of when we're going to record the show, uh, doing the judging and announcing the winners. So I would say that as long as you get it to us by the end of this weekend, that you're probably going to be okay. So that'd be the 14th. Right. Yep. So a small extension there. But if you <laughs> send us your geo-themed limerick that is family friendly <laughs> we will add it into the pool and we've already had an audio submission so, so excited it's about that <laughs> even better if you record yourself performing your limerick for us so we can play that right um please do that because that was just fantastic even though we have to transcribe them it's totally worth it um so send those to us show at don'tpanicgeocast.com uh we're on twitter at don'tpanicgeo at geo underscore lehman and at shannon doolin and come join us in our slack channel uh we love to hang out and not do work you know yeah so slack. <laughs> link in the show notes swung dot rocks for software underground and there is a don't panic geocast channel there right. and we will see you there but until next week remember don't panic it's not an exact science any opinions findings conclusions or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies